Uh, I'm very pleased to be able to uh, reintroduce, in a sense, our colleague uh, Heather Hendershot, who spent last year at the Harvard uh, Radcliffe, uh, let me get the exact title, the Radcliffe, uh, Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, doing various advanced study at uh, Harvard, and in fact, that's going to be uh, what she'll be covering to some extent to tonight. Uh, but for those who are not aware of her track record, Professor Hendershot has published a number of books. She was author of Saturday Morning Censors in 98, uh, editor of Nickelodeon Nation in 2004, the same year that she came out with Shaking the World for Jesus, one of the best book titles I've heard, and What's Fair on the Air in 2011. She was also former editor, former editor, right, of the Cinema Journal, um, which is the official journal of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. So she was on leave last year, as I said. We're thrilled to have her back and, of course, put her back to work as the uh, director of the CMS Graduate Program. And tonight, you can see the title. We're going to hear her chat about, well, I'll just let you introduce it rather than. Okay. So, welcome. Great. Thanks, Ed. Great. Thank you all for coming. Um, I want to particularly actually uh, give a shout out to, to people who aren't here right now. My uh, graduate students from my CMS major media text, no rather, uh, Theories and Methods 2 from the spring 2015 or 2013, um, sort of late in the semester we had read uh, quite a bit of scholarly writing and even more non scholarly, non-academic writing, and we were talking about the pros and cons and the very good reasons to publish uh, for scholarly audiences, uh, in uni for university presses, and also the very good reasons that one might publish for a wider audience uh, and publish through a trade press. And uh, they immediately asked me, so what about that firing line book? Is that going to be through a trade press? You know, put your money where your mouth is. And I sort of didn't even think about it. I just said, oh, yes, I'm going to do that. Yes, that's a great idea. And so I did it. <laughs> so this, uh, what I'm presenting right now, is the sort of fruits of the labor that came out of that uh, sort of spontaneous exchange uh, in that graduate class. Um, so what I'm going to do is uh, present a sort of condensed version for you of my introduction and my first chapter of my book, which is called uh, Open to Debate, How William F. Buckley Jr. Put Liberal America on the Firing Line. So I'm going to give you the introduction and the first chapter in a kind of condensed form. And then I'm going to give you a quick tour of the conclusion, which will bring us directly back to the title of my talk today, From Firing a Line to the O'Reilly Factor. Um, because my book focuses on a show that aired from 1966 to 1999, uh, so it's a historical project, but an important part of that project is thinking about uh, what Firing Line can teach us for thinking about the contemporary media sphere um, and what's going on with Fox News and uh, Bill O'Reilly and so on. So that's where we, where we will end up. When William F. Buckley's Firing Line premiered in 1966, liberalism appeared to many, conservatives and liberals alike, to be an unstoppable force in American cultural and political life. One of Buckley's earliest guests was liberal talk show host David Susskind, who was invited to discuss the prevailing bias. And Buckley's contention was that the dominant thrust of the mainstream media was a liberal one. And I want to show you a very short clip from that, uh, that show just to give you a sense of uh, what they were talking about. Now, that by and large, the new services and the television industry and the schools and the universities are liberal dominated, are you, or are you? 
Well, uh, if you use it in any pejorative sense, of course I do. I think that the entire thrust of our country in the last 40 years has been a liberal thrust in our legislation, in our churches, in our schools, in our communications media. There's nothing sinister or evil. We call that progress. Suskind spoke from a position of supreme confidence in the wake of FDR's New Deal and at the moment of LBJ's Great Society. Liberalism was the norm. It was progress. Now, there's no doubt that liberalism seemed to have won in 1966 and into the 70s, and seemed is the operative word here. The anti-war movement and the counterculture thrived in the 1960s, the feminist and gay rights movements accelerated in the 1970s, and even network TV became relevant uh, with the rise of uh, shows uh, like uh, All in the Family and Mary Tyler Moore, TV became vaguely sort of liberal. Um, at the same time, a conservative insurgency was growing, coming to a head with Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. As both the New Deal and the Great Society went down in flames on Reagan's watch, firing lines simply became less compelling. And by the time the show went off the air in 1999, Buckley had run endless victory laps, frequently hosting conservative guests such as Henry Kissinger and Robert Bork, people who seemed to believe, uh, agree with him about just about everything, uh, such as uh, Rush Limbaugh. But as Firing Line's first producer put it, the show had originally been conceived as a bare-knuckled intellectual brawl between ideological opponents. Open to debates focuses on the bare-knuckled years from 1966 to 1980, charting Firing Line's engagement with the key issues and personalities that undergirded America's dramatic shift from left to right in those years. Firing Line began only two years after right-wing Republican Barry Goldwater lost his bid for the White House, as conservative activists and politicians were engineering America's tectonic shift right. Conservatives felt the change as gradual, laborious. To many liberals, it was more like a car crash, sudden and unexpected. Like David Susskind, they had assumed that the triumph of liberalism was simply a fait accompli. Other Firing Line guests would confirm this, yet Buckley Plugged. Buckley plugged on, excuse me, assuming his side would win until it finally did. Firing Line generally pitted Buckley against a liberal or leftist to discuss topics such as how goes it with the black movement with Huey P. Newton? How can ex-communists cooperate with Victor Navasky? These were often sort of when did you stop beating your wife questions in the titles of the shows because of course the answer is that ex-communists cannot cooperate. Uh, Armies of the Night with Norman Mailer, the Black Panthers with Eldridge Cleaver. Uh, and some of these images I'm going to show you are reference pictures uh, for the book that are um, from the Hoover Institution. So there's a you know, little glare, a little fuzzy, but you get the idea. So this is Buckley with the famous um, black power activist Eldridge Cleaver. And one of the all-time worst episodes of Firing Line is The World Funny with Groucho Marx. This debate format embodied thoughtful, two-sided programming. Buckley recognized that smart political discussions and smart political TV benefited from ideological conflict. I'd like to show you two clips that will illustrate the show when it succeeded and when it failed. Uh, it often succeeded. It was a very good show. But in the first few years, they were really kind of finding their way. They were playing with the format. Um, and I want to show you a clip from the Groucho Marx episode. Uh, where you can just see how uh, sort of terrible it often was in the first couple of years when they didn't hit the mark. I'd like to begin by asking Mr. Marks, do you mind if I call you Mr. Marks? 
I wish you'd call me Groucho. All right, I will. I'll rather be... I'll call you Willie. Fine. It's good enough for Somerset Mom. I don't know why it isn't good enough for you. I certainly wouldn't want you to start being polite on my show. Uh, whether the whether the last those uh, two lines got on on Waterville Aville is a, a cue to the question is the world funny? Ladies and gentlemen, in a moment we shall hear Mr. Marx's answer to Mr. Buckley's question. My name is C. Dickerman Williams, and I shall act as chairman of this discussion between Mr. Marx and Mr. Buckley. The subject of the discussion will be is the world funny? Mr. Marx. <coughs> Would you answer Mr. Buckley's question, is the world funny? He didn't ask me, you just asked me. Would you ask Mike, answer Mike? Okay, so throughout the show, Groucho's kind of making fun of them. They don't realize that he's making fun of them. At one point, he makes a joke about um, uh, Newton Minow having plagiarized from T.S. Eliot when he called television the great wa uh, a wasteland, and Buckley takes great offense. And, you know, they're just talking across each other. What's with the wood-paneled studio with the big potted plant? Doesn't make sense. They have this moderator behind a podium, which they got rid of a few years later. Um, so they hadn't really worked the kinks out of it. Now I want to show you a clip from an episode that came a little bit later, uh, this one with Norman Mailer uh, on the release of his book Armies of the Night. And this opens with Buckley reading aloud from the book, and he's actually reading a quotation that Mailer has given from uh, Time magazine. After all said was uh, after more after more obscenities, Mailer introduced poet Robert Lowell, who got annoyed at requests to speak louder. Uh, I'll bellow, but it won't do any good. He said, and proceeded to read from Lord Weary's castle. By by the time the action shifted to the Pentagon, Mailer was perky enough to get himself arrested by two marshals. Poets I transgressed a police line. He explained with some pride on the way to lockup where the toilet facilities are scarce indeed, and the coffee mugs are low octane. That's not pure time, where the toilet facilities are scarce indeed. That's good, I think. It's good for time. That's what you were talking about. <laughs> you were talking about micturation in your book. I never thought I'd hear well, that over that many syllables. That's our, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the influence. It's, it's because of our close and continuing correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the, that's another example of, of, of Time magazine at work, though. Uh, you, you know, they, they, earlier in this, they, they talk about engaging in a scatological solo. You know, Extraordinary, ambiguous remark. And what was I doing? Was I acting like a monkey, throwing gobbets? You know, that's what you get from the idea of a scatological solo. Whereas actually, I spent the confession I made that night was about micturation, wasn't it? So you know, there's a, there is a you know there's a there's a physical, spiritual, and probably a philosophical difference between uh, scatological matters and acts of micturation. Well, I can see that you're a student of the subject. <laughs> I, 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 I'm glad you can keep up with it. Is that good? Let's try to refocus the discussion. Mine here is the Time Magazine Observe. Okay. So this just gives you a sense of the tone when the show was really working. It's not one of the more political episodes, and we'll see a clip from one of those later, but it gives you a sense of what it was like when all the pistons were firing. Um, Firing Line was initially imagined as a 13-episode series, but it ultimately ran for over 1,400 episodes. So by contrast, um, there were 635 episodes of Gunsmoke, right, one of the longest-running series in American TV. There are 456 episodes of Law and Order, which we think of as a show with, like, the most episodes. So 1,400 is really a lot. Buckley claimed from the beginning, perhaps with some pride, that his ratings were exiguous. But he was only syndicated on commercial TV for five years, after which the show had the rest of its ratings-free run on PBS. And I should add that Buckley was widely referred to as a sesquipedalian 
Um, so <laughs> if you don't know the meaning of exiguous or you didn't until today, that's, you know, you're not the only one. It's hard to imagine a TV star less interested in TV than Buckley. He won an Emmy for Firing Line in 1969, and it was the longest-running public affairs show with a single host in U.S. history, but Buckley remained a TV industry outsider. It would be somewhat unfair, however, even uncouth, to describe Buckley as a snob. He did write a fun novel about Elvis Presley, after all. He wrote an article about Elvis Presley for TV Guide, William F. Buckley Jr. on Elvis's legacy. And he once said about Elvis, uh, Elvis Presley had the most beautiful singing voice of any human being on earth. In 1970, he consented to be interviewed by Playboy magazine. This made him practically hip. That same year, he appeared on Laugh-In, explaining there that I did an interview with Playboy because I decided it was the only way to communicate my views to my son, and noting that he had only agreed to appear on Laugh-In because the producers offered to fly him out to California on an airplane with two right wings. Buckley even admitted to a fondness for all in the family. Archie Bunker, he noted on a 1979 Firing Lane episode, is the greatest anti-conservative ripoff in the history of modern offensives. I mean, you don't need Karl Marx. All you need is Archie Bunker. He's despicable, but he's kind of endearing in a way. Buckley even acknowledged that anybody who wants effectively to understand what's going on has got to watch TV. The most bookish man I ever knew, Whitaker Chambers, watched television uninterruptedly from about 7 until 11 every single night of his life. Yet Buckley also noted that he was too busy to watch TV very much himself. He honestly had no idea who Jabba the Hutt was. He admitted to never watching professional football. And at a press conference during his run for mayor of New York City in 1965, he was stumped by reference to Mickey Mantle. All of which is to say, Buckley was neither unaware of the importance of mass culture nor deeply plugged into it himself. If Firing Line was unique in the 60s and 70s as a specifically conservative public affairs program, it did mirror the dull aesthetic of other public affairs shows. As Buckley described it, my television program was modestly designed. No production values, exclaimed one horrified TV executive. Now what's fascinating here is that Buckley was comfortable hosting such a drab-looking affair. As a writer and editor, Buckley had flair. You might not care for his heavy-handed dropping of Latinates or for his politics, but no one could accuse his work of sloppiness or imprecision. While not exactly technically incompetent, Firing Line was not slick. The show appeared to be produced using a conventional three-camera setup. Episodes would often open with a moving shot across the assembled audience. And throughout the 60s and 70s, the audience typically consisted of high school or college students, occasionally seated on folding chairs, but more often scattered on the floor with pillows if they were lucky. Buckley was keen on converting youth to the conservative cause, and there was something charming, if haphazard, about these seating arrangements. And you can see here, this is one of those reference images, a little fuzzy, but... They didn't even get pillows in this one. They're just sitting on sort of blankets. Um, and only the Q&A people get a couch on the side. That's Jeff Greenfield on the far right on the couch um, as a young man before he moved on to a, a regular TV career. There's no denying that the audience setup looked cheap. As one irritated viewer put it in a letter of complaint, some shows looked as if they had been, quote, shot through a pair of badly worn cheap nylons. The carpeted dice was drab, the lighting never varied, and many of the guests were men in suits, their legs crossed, trousers riding up above black socks revealing an inch or two of pale white skin. The exceptions 
Black power spokesmen wearing dramatic dashikis. Feminists sporting smart plaid pantsuits. Anti-feminists flaunting Ann Landers-style hairdos brought only occasional visual relief. One could also count on the distraction of Buckley's distinctive mannerisms, his almost British accent, his inclination to dart his tongue out like a lizard. Um, but it really didn't matter. Viewers came for the words and the ideas. And, and just I'll just pause for a second. So this is another setup from the early show. We see that horrible moderator again. And you can see they're actually crouched on bar stools with like your knees up inside the podium. If you've ever seen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, he looks kind of like the clerk in that movie. So it's really quite disastrous. Um, but it really didn't matter. Viewers came for the words and the ideas, and also perhaps when the show premiered in 1966 for the sheer novelty of seeing an articulate right-wing conservative explain his views. Just one year earlier, historian Richard Hofstadter had famously attributed right-wing political thinking to paranoia, anti-intellectualism, and what he called status anxiety. Whether you thought his politics were brilliant or abhorrent, Buckley was the embodiment of what you might call status security. He was walking, talking proof of the insufficiency of Hofstadter's claims. As if to drive the point home, one of Firing Line's earliest guests was Barry Goldwater. To many Americans, Goldwater's landslide defeat confirmed the triumph of liberalism and the waning of the extremism that Hofstadter had described. Buckley was determined to show the world that conservatism was alive and well and that paranoid conspiracy theorists of the John Birch Society variety should not be taken as synecdochic for the conservative movement. To fully understand Firing Line, then, one must start by considering its stance on Goldwater and the extremists. And this is the topic of Chapter 1 of Open to Debate, the title of which is Goldwater, Extremism, and Stylish Conservatism. Upon Buckley's passing in 2008, literary critic Hugh Kenner was quoted in a number of obituaries, observing that Bill was responsible for rejecting the John Birch Society and the other kooks. Without him, there probably would be no respectable conservative movement in this country. Now, what's left unsaid here is that Buckley began as a Birch Society supporter. Like Barry Goldwater, he maintained for some time that many Birchers had legitimate conservative notions. It was only their fearless leader, Robert Welch, who had gone off the deep end, diving into a conspiratorial morass, even calling President Eisenhower a dedicated conscious agent of the communist conspiracy. Buckley's magazine, The National Review, wryly countered that Ike was not a communist, he was a golfer. Okay, just the most bland nothing that was imaginable, right? Rejecting Welch meant losing National Review subscribers, which was no small thing, as National Review was persistently in the red, like all journals of opinion. But Buckley bit the bullet and officially rejected the John Birch Society in the pages of his magazine. Buckley's rather commonsensical insight was that such extremist kooks had to be cut loose for the conservative movement to move forward, and the Republican Party agreed with him. And this is a great uh, cartoon that I think has some contemporary relevance when we think about the extremists and the Tea Party and so on today, is what we see here, this guy sitting here is making out with Birchism, okay? He is labeled the GOP right wing, and then this is Bob Welch, his shoulders labeled, and the... Uh, GOP right wing says, sorry, old boy, but your wife and I feel you're becoming an embarrassment, meaning we want the votes of, you know, Birches, you know, the members of the society, but we don't want to be associated with this kook. We want to distance ourselves from him. Um, 
Moving away from the extremists was an expression of a principled stance against paranoid and conspiratorial thinking. And it was also a practical move on a level so obvious that it seems almost ridiculous to point it out. The kooks make conservatism look bad. Casting off the extremists meant seeking out a respectable image. So, yes, Buckley made conservatism respectable. But Neil Freeman, an early firing line producer, provides a different angle from which to approach our understanding of Buckley's, and by extension, firing line's contribution to the movement. Other people could have made conservatism respectable, he notes, but nobody else could have made it stylish. What did it mean to make conservatism not just respectable, but also stylish? And what role did firing line play in this elaborate makeover? Via his performance on Firing Line, Buckley showed that conservatives could be witty, urbane, and eloquent. If you came to the show as a liberal viewer, you might find him snide and condescending. But even when he was at his most disdainful, there was no denying his panache. In offering his stylish intellectualism, Buckley was in effect advertising his non-extremist version of right-wing conservatism. Today, we might even crassly call this uh, you know, rebranding. By rhetorically sparring with liberal after liberal on the show, Buckley would demonstrate that right-wing conservatism had not died with Goldwater's defeat. Uh, today, we're accustomed to blowhards like Bill O'Reilly screeching, shut off his mic when liberal guests offend him. And this kind of bluster was alien to Buckley, who wanted to take a deep dive into the ideological currents of his opponents. I want to show you a clip from the episode with Germaine Greer, the famous feminist, where he's asked her some questions about the feminist interest in uh, language and the patriarchal bias of language. And this is her response. The paradox, which appears sometimes like a contradiction in my book. Um, are you to make he and she words equal in estimation, or are you to screen out she as forever incapable of equaling he in estimation it, grammatically. Grammatically? You could be anti-feminist, you see, by but, suppressing feminism, by suppressing the femaleness of a pronoun. But there's no implied hierarchy as far as I can see. Oh, there is. But our Scots form says you should never refer to early man. You should refer to early humans, which means that you can't use the selective game. But not only that, um, what it means is that the real attitude is going to be concealed by a form of primitive censorship, by a kind of ritual observance, whereas the actual situation won't change. It's like calling people mirrors when in fact they're married. It doesn't change the character of their marriage. And I think it's a sort of hypocrisy. No, in, in other words, you, you, you think that the emphasis on nomenclature uh, is uh, preposterous. Well, I think it's, it's such a trivial aspect of a real struggle, and it's been given so much attention. I think it's part of a general movement to co-opt a struggle for existence, really, and turn it into something. Okay, so I thought this would give you a nice taste of the, what I've called the ideological deep dive, where they're really having a real political discussion. And it, what's interesting is that um, often Buckley had liberals on, or he, he got along well with leftists sometimes because the leftists hated liberals as much as he did, right? The people that are kind of more in the middle. So what she's doing is critiquing liberal feminism. And he's like, yes, I agree. They just have different reasons for making the critique. But they're both put off by the way that liberal feminism is focusing on language and introducing words like Ms. into the language and so on. Notwithstanding Buckley's inclination toward the ideological deep dive, there was also a surface quality to Buckley's style on firing line. The quick quips, the condescension, the cutting smile accompanying verbal expressions of disbelief. 
This is not to say that Buckley wanted to bring viewers to the conservative side simply by virtue of his verbal dexterity, close shave, and fine dress shirts. He knew that the image of conservatism he was creating was not merely one of surfaces. After all, a frequent, a frequent reference point for him was the infamous first Kennedy-Nixon debate of 1960, where famously radio listeners felt that the debaters did about equally well, um, or maybe Nixon won, while TV viewers felt that Kennedy had won. JFK was more handsome and did not suffer from the five o'clock shadow that seemingly sprouted on Nixon shortly after breakfast. Buckley was more than concerned by the notion that JFK had won in 1960 because of the power of the televisual image. He was offended. Buckley abhorred the facile surface quality of politics. It should come as no surprise then that throughout his 1965 mayoral campaign, Buckley talked the way he'd always talked drawing from a deep well of vocabulary that would send a PhD in English rushing to the dictionary. The speeches of his opponent, John Lindsay, overflowed with, as Buckley put it, remorseless cliches, ear-clanging phrases, irretrievable syntax. Buckley was appalled that this somehow passed for cogent political discourse in New York City. Ironically, it was his own appealing televisual presence that ultimately enabled Buckley to show how truly shallow Lindsay was. In a tremendous stroke of good luck for Buckley, there was a newspaper strike in the middle of the campaign, and suddenly the number of candidates' TV appearances increased to compensate for lacking newspaper coverage. And no political candidate ever dared to look so bored and above it all on TV as Buckley. <laughs> By rejecting the notion that it was appearances that mattered in political campaigning, Buckley won the war of appearances. He was thus perfectly positioned to continue his war against liberalism and moderate conservatism when Firing Line premiered a year later after the mayoral campaign. Although many guests were chosen that first year precisely because they were Buckley's political opposite, there was one quite notable exception that I mentioned earlier, Barry Goldwater. How fitting that Buckley's penultimate posthumous publication would be a tribute to Goldwater. In 1995, some 30 years after Goldwater's blowout defeat, Buckley hosted a Firing Line episode with conservative guests entitled Goldwater Old and New. The program began with expressions of mutual befuddlement. Goldwater had opposed abortion and gay rights in the past, but now he had reversed directions uh, in both issues. What on earth was going on? Hypotheses were advanced, but discussion quickly shifted to the 1964 election and the contention that Goldwater had been bamboozled by the mainstream media. Decades later, Buckley and his firing line guests were still reluctant to admit that Americans really had voted against right-wing conservatism in 1964. The implication was that this had been the outcome of the election because people had been misinformed and had therefore misperceived Goldwater as an extremist. But as guest Lee Edwards put it on the 1995 firing line episode, Goldwater proved to be the most important loser in American politics. Few could have predicted this in 1964. 30 years later, Buckley and, and his guests had been proven correct, but he and his guests could make neither head nor tail of the new Goldwater, a man who was honored by Planned Parenthood for persistently voting to uphold Roe v. Wade, a man who reacted to Jerry Falwell's admonition that good Christians should be worried about the nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor to the Supreme Court by saying, I think every good Christian ought to kick Falwell right in the ass. A man who, responding in 1982 to the rise of the so-called new right, as embodied by Jesse Helms, said, I don't like being called the new right. I'm an old, old son of a bitch.
I'm a conservative. The extremist label had been firing lines bugaboo throughout the 1960s, and Buckley had particularly taken offense when it was applied to Goldwater or to himself. By the time the Goldwater old and new episode of Firing Line aired in 1995, extremist would have seemed like a terribly dated pejorative. But old son of a bitch conservative, well, that was both apt and timeless. So this is how my chapter on Goldwater and the extremist concludes. And I'd like to end by giving you a quick tour of some of my conclusion uh, of the book, the title of which is In Praise of Honest Intellectual Combat. In the National Review's 1955 mission statement, Buckley declared the magazine's devotion to honest intellectual combat rather than conformity. NR writers attacked liberalism, but the journal was also a space for conservatives to define and refine their own credos, a space where different strains of conservatism could duke it out. Firing Line continued this mission, but also took it in a new tactical direction. While conservatives did sometimes gather on the show to sort out their own questions, Buckley's program was more often a space for left wing to meet the right wing. The result was no holds barred, honest intellectual combat, a space that both liberal and conservative viewers could turn to to have their ideas confirmed, but also challenged. Buckley hoped to convert viewers, but there was more to it than that. You could actually learn about other points of view and thereby become a better liberal or a better conservative from watching the show. There's simply no equivalent on TV today. Conservatives have Fox News, liberals have MSNBC, and in more neutral territory, we find C-SPAN. Overall, politically oriented broadcasting has become a vast echo chamber, especially on talk radio, of course, with many tuning in largely to have their views confirmed and hear the other side vilified. This is not a scenario that encourages true dialogue. So how do we get from firing line to the O'Reilly factor? How can we possibly fix things? These are difficult questions to answer. It's easy to pine for the days when news and public affairs were theoretically smarter, before the rise of cable news, but this is nostalgia, plain and simple. Firing Line mostly stood alone in a TV, news, and public affairs environment that was not particularly cerebral. In the 1950s and into the early 60s, the nightly news consisted of 15 minutes of anchors, mostly reading AP wire stories, and this was expanded to half an hour by the mid-1960s. The 15-minute format was a carryover from radio, but it was also a sign of exactly how much the networks valued such programming. Not much. During the network era, news shows at their worst had no budgets and were thin enterprises. And at their best, they were expensive because reporters actually went out in the field and did real in-depth reporting. But such programs did not make money. Rather, they were lost leaders providing public service, all of which is to say, in remarking upon the depressing one-sided echo chamber turn in much of today's cable news and public affairs programming, we should take care not to romanticize the past by overstating the high quality of pre-cable era news. True, it had some great moments and some great reporters. Further, it performed a service by conveying breaking news, such as the Kennedy assassination, the moon landing, election results, and so on. But the networks always saw entertainment shows as their bread and butter. News and public affairs were the green vegetables they were required to provide in order to keep their FCC licenses secure. There were real talk show talents on the air in the network years, and few of them even had a little bit of a political edge, but there was nobody to match Buckley. Firing line was utterly anomalous. So getting back to the question of how do we get from there to here, um, I think that deregulation and the collapse of the fairness doctrine are a really key part of the story. There was one-sided political broadcasting before the demise of the doctrine, 
But it was a risky endeavor because it violated FCC policy. It was mostly right-wing stuff. John Birch Society members attacking Earl Warren, fundamentals preaching against desegregation, the White Citizens Council uh, delivering anti-integration editorials on TV. Such programming tended to stay beneath the FCC's radar uh, by remaining local instead of national. This is a story that I look at in my last book, What's Fair on the Air. One-sided news and public affairs blatantly violated the fairness doctrine and thus obviously sought to avoid FCC attention. The Reagan administration eliminated the doctrine in 1987, and it's no coincidence that Rush Limbaugh became a national radio star very shortly thereafter. The rationale of the doctrine had always been scarcity. There was limited spectrum space for broadcasters, and if you had a TV or radio license, you had to serve the public with the scarce resource. Thus, the doctrine proclaimed broadcasts were, expect, were expected to cover controversial issues of public importance, and when they did so, they were to provide contrasting points of view on those issues. With deregulation came the rise of cable in the 1980s, and TV stopped being so scarce. Today, of course, we also have satellite radio, the internet, podcasts, you name it. So we've gone from a diet of scarcity to one of gluttony. The rise of cable in the Reagan years and beyond brought with it highly specialized programming. If today many conservatives gravitate to Fox News, then this should be understood within the wider context of a radically subdivided entertainment environment in which liberals gravitate to MSNBC, men to ESPN, women to Oxygen, children to Nickelodeon, homeowners to Home and Garden TV, movie lovers to AMC, pet owners to Animal Planet, ad infinitum. The odds are not in favor of truly fair and balanced news thriving in a deregulated and fragmented communications marketplace in which serving a mass audience is not a realistic objective outside of a few special events, right, like the Super Bowl. News and public affairs programs targeting everybody, like in the Walter Cronkite days, simply have a tough time surviving. Further, the rise of 24-hour news channels has led to uh, what one uh, scholar calls the elevation of talk over reporting. Talk on television is literally cheap. You have to fill time for 24 hours. The result is that 24-hour news is really never 24-hour news. It's a bit of news surrounded by a lot of opinion-oriented programming. Um, and again, this is the same scholar, Jeff Jones, uh, from the Peabody Awards. He says the cable networks have demonstrated how to craft endless hours of talk about the news more than the reporting of it. Although cable news has, I believe, done much damage in undercutting civility and political discourse, it is insufficient to simply single out blowhards like Bill O'Reilly or Fox News overlord Roger Ailes, so handsome, or on the left, Keith Olbermann, formerly of MSNBC. The problem is partly that there's money in staging the televisual equivalent of cockfighting. But it's also worth emphasizing the insufficiency of describing the current environment of rapidly competitive niche TV as simply a post-network symptom. We're beyond post-network at this point. It's only a slight exaggeration to say that we live in post-TV days. Variations on the old genre still, uh, still exist, right? Sitcoms, dramas, talk shows, news, game shows. But Americans are no longer watching these programs play out inside big square boxes perched on tables. And many don't even watch them on big flat rectangles hung on their walls. We watch TV on our computers, on mobile devices, on the go, whenever we want and often without advertisements. TV used to be known as a push medium. You took what you were given. Now it's a pull medium. You take what you want. Um, notwithstanding all these recommendation engines that extrapolate from what you've seen and tell you what you should like in the future, right? 
So they're, you know, they're pushing in that way for sure. Further, many people spend as much or more time engaging with social media or reading and watching not TV content, blogs, news aggregation sites, YouTube videos, and so on, than they do watching actual TV shows. If cable has helped news devolve into one-sided opinion mongering and shouting matches between political opponents, it has done so because the competition for eyeballs has never been fiercer and because content must be specifically branded to stand out from all the noise. In light of all this, it is not enough, although it can be self-satisfying, to be a crank and declare the death of civility in the public sphere, taking cable news skirmishes as proof of your grand declaration. The problem of grandstanding newscaster personalities is real, but the disintegration of network TV domination is the bigger structural issue with which we must contend. Given this environment, one has to wonder how firing line chugged along until 1999. Clearly, it had been out of place for years, a sort of network era time capsule. Even before Fox News appeared in 1996, there had been signs that firing line was going the way of the Studebaker. Rick Brookheiser observes, and he was a, he's a National Review writer uh, who uh, uh, has written a, a book about his relationship with Buckley and so on. Brookheiser says, the McLaughlin group was really the death knell, or McLaughlin? McLaughlin? Who, who knows how to pronounce it? McLaughlin. McLaughlin, thank you. The McLaughlin group was really the death knell for firing line. The program, which premiered in 1982, lowered political discussion, he contends, to a kind of sitcom level. Uh, when he told me this, I said, but that's insulting to sitcoms, because sitcoms are kind of better than McLaughlin Report. Uh, the guests were characters, he said, and that's why they were on. Now, of course, Bill himself was a character. He played himself. But Bill was also truly interested in what people thought and in arguing with them. He was on the Yale debate team. And that was kind of part of his training. He liked to see where he could take a person in a discussion and what might ensue. And that's not at all the way McLaughlin Group worked. The New York Times described the show in 1992 as a circus in which, uh, as they put it, five barking, squawking, ideologically split pundits argue national and foreign affairs in a go-to-hell fashion that would have made Walter Lippmann, the patrician columnist of an earlier, gentler age, weep at the loss of any last shred of political gentility. This kind of stuff drives home the point that the problem with cable-era news is not just that it skews toward one-sided harangues, but that simultaneously two-sided debate is built into the system in order to amp up the volume of the drama, or rather the circus. It's not enough for liberal and conservative opinion mongers to state their perspectives. They have to attack each other and escalate their animosity into feuds, all grist for the sausage grinder that is news about news. In this toxic environment, Liberal Mark Shields and conservative David Brooks making 10-minute weekly appearances on PBS NewsHour offer nothing short of an oasis of gentility. Such nice gentlemen just talking things through, right? While there's clearly no TV host today who brings together Buckley's unique style, erudition, and sense of humor, I did sometimes see a glimmer of firing line in the Colbert Report. Perhaps this sounds far-fetched, but stay with me. Colbert was, like Buckley, interested in hearing what the other side had to say, tremendously sharp and entertaining, and inclined to see the humor in politics. Like Buckley, he was even a devout Catholic. On the other hand, he was a satirist, playing a truly outrageous version of Fox News' Bill O'Reilly. And Colbert's guests never got more than five to eight minutes to exchange ideas. It was terrific stuff, but it was finely crafted comedy, with politics coming in sound bites, rather than via slowly unfurled disquisition. It's worth adding, though, that Colbert himself was a huge Buckley fan. And I want to um, show you 
a clip. This was uh, on TV the day after Buckley died. Hopefully we won't have to watch this stupid ad again. There we go. I would like to show you something magnificent. Jim? Would you guess that the Panamanian people would prefer or not prefer to exercise sovereignty over their own territory? Take as long as you want to answer that. <laughs> that person right there, besting the great communicator was William F. Buckley Jr., personal hero of mine, who passed away yesterday at the age of whatever 2008 minus 1925 is. 16, I don't know. Back in the mid-50s, when conservative wasn't cool or 23 skidoo, Mr. Buckley took on the liberal establishment and founded the National Review, a magazine that became the philosophical bedrock of modern conservatism. It lacked only pseudo. Naturally, the ghouls over at the New York Times couldn't wait to slander this great man's memory. Look at this headline, okay? William F. Buckley, sesquipedalian spark of the right. Sesquipedalian? Just how many legs are you accusing him of having? The man was not a caterpillar. Of course, they went after him because Buckley was a fearless nailer of liberals on his long-running PBS show, Firing Line. Just watch him school egghead radical linguist Noam Chomsky in their famous 1969 <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if, if you want me to pursue that digression, I will. That wink, that last little wink was like the bite of a black widow spider. Chomsky, I think it bit me on the mouth. Chomsky could not pursue a digression for weeks. My only quibble with Bill Buckley is that he was a little wordy. Why say this? Uh, it is not always easy to taxonomize military action into that which is terroristic and that which is purely military operation. When you could say this. Shut up. That is my far left Nazi blah, 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 blah. Okay? <laughs> okay, that's one of my favorite, favorite TV moments ever. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. The Colbert Report was very much a product of its time. TV programming has become so niche compared to the old network days that not only is there a station just for comedy, within that there is a sub-niche of news comedy with a liberal host offering a satirical portrayal of a right-wing news pundit from a different niche channel. If Walter Cronkite were alive today, his head would be spinning. And there's yet another issue to contend with in our post-TV news world, the current revival of conspiratorial thinking a situation exacerbated by the maelstrom of social media. In the old days, any nut could stand on a street corner pontificating against fluoridation as a communist plot. He could even write a pamphlet on the topic for the John Birch Society to distribute it in its American opinion bookstores. This was free speech in action, but how many actually heard it? Today, such a person can reach an exponentially larger audience on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Glenn Beck, for example, promoted his conspiracy theories on Fox News for two and a half years until he was finally canceled not because ratings were low, but because it was increasingly difficult to find advertisers willing to associate themselves with him. 
right? It's just like gold and silver companies, right? So you could hoard gold and silver for the coming communist apocalypse. Undeterred, but uh, Beck launched his own channel on the internet. And in 2015, he was picked up by Cablevision, which has 3 million subscribers in the New Jersey, Connecticut, New York area. So Beck is a perfect example of the post-TV conspiracy theorist come entertainer. He can thrive on TV or off it, thanks in large part to social media. It's clear that since Obama's election, there's been a surge on the right of a kind of neo-John Birch Society mentality, and the kookiness that Buckley helped push out to the fringes has moved closer in. In this climate, both left, both left and right would profit from the kind of reason debate that dominated on firing line. But would it be feasible to produce a new program in the Buckley tradition? What would it look like? Here's my fantasy version of what I will tentatively call Firing Line 2.0. Such a program would provide a full hour of uninterrupted political talk, most often between political opponents. It would be relatively cheap to produce and would require a charismatic and wildly smart host willing to book not just big-name politicians but also intellectuals. It would be a brainiac show with brainiac guests oriented toward discussion rather than interview. When a host asks all the questions and then waits for answers, we're in interview mode. When the both host and guest participate equally in a conversation or debate, even as the host sometimes provides, say, some prompts, we're in the Buckleyite discussion mode. And that's what I think is harder to find on TV. Such a program without splashy graphics and music, without a focus on personal attacks, and without the nasty conspiratorial edge that characterizes so much personality-driven cable news programming would not stand much of a chance on Fox News, even if the right host could be found, which of course is the hardest thing, right? That kind of show is simply not a match for the Fox News brand, and the same would hold for MSNBC if my show had a liberal host, not the right fit for MSNBC, too brainy. In fact, I would advocate for a show like this, uh, I wouldn't advocate for a show like this on Fox News or CNN because they, these are the two channels that have the highest viewer numbers of the news channels. And C-SPAN or CNBC have lower numbers, so it would be more likely to take a risk on a show that would not make a ton of money. They'd have to make space for it in their schedule. In point of fact, I think that the smartest home for the show would probably be HBO, a cable channel not branded as a place for news, but as a place for quality. If I've learned anything as a liberal watching hundreds of hours of firing line, it's the value of testing political ideas against each other, hashing it out, and finding a way to disagree, usually, if not always, without animosity. And this kind of discussion demands long interrupted, uh, excuse me, uninterrupted blocks of time. Thus, on the hypothetical firing line 2.0, our host and guests would sit and talk, engaging in honest intellectual combat without clips and cutaways, without interruptions for advertisements, and far away from the soundbite culture of the tweetosphere. You couldn't prevent people from tweeting while they watch. I'm just saying that that kind of stuff wouldn't be integrated into the program. We don't have to pretend to go back in time. The show could have a website. It could be promoted via social media. But the show itself would be simply an hour of smart talk. In the firing line tradition, episodes would not be required to respond in a flat-footed manner to current events. For example, let's say there was an obnoxious billionaire running for president, just hypothetically, with no actual political qualifications and a propensity for making disparaging comments about women and ethnic minorities. Buckley would have been unlikely to have conceived an episode responding directly to this guy's latest shenanigans. Instead, he would have had a journalist or a political philosopher on the show to discuss the topic along the lines of, what's up with outsider political candidates? 
Discussion would center on debating the desirability of such candidates and wondering if they represented democracy at its best or at its worst. Rather than responding to the candidates' latest ignominious outbursts, Firing Line 2.0 would shelve sensationalism in favor of illumination. After all, we already have plenty of shows, both good and bad, that review what happened in the news this week. And part of what made Firing Line unique was that it was responsive to current events, but also tried to get at the bigger picture. The shows were very rarely, rarely repeated, uh, but most of them could have been, which is untrue of most episodes of today's political programs. Certainly a firing line like 1976's The New Spiro T. Agnew is distinctly of its time, a frozen historical moment. On the other hand, Mortimer Adler speaking graciously on the topic, how to speak, how to listen, is timeless. Firing line always vacillated between evergreen and amber, and at its best it was a little bit of both. Firing line 2.0 might well be a pie-in-the-sky notion, but even brainstorming about such an idea helps us to see what kind of political discourse is lacking from TV, uh, or if you will, the post-TV landscape. And this in and of itself, I think, is a salutary exercise. There'll never be a show just like Firing Line, but that's okay. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to improve the quality of political discussion on TV and to increase the amount of honest intellectual combat. There are many lessons to be learned from Firing Line. Some of them are quite literally lessons. Watch enough of the show and you will know more than you ever imagined you might about topics such as civil rights, feminism, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, Libertarianism, the death penalty, the blacklist, the new journalism, the conservative movement, the counterculture, Vietnam, Bach, China, the USSR, uh, the USSR, the UN, Watergate, the US Post Office, and even meat prices and agricultural policy. You name it. On the other hand, while the view on the ground reveals all these very topics, the helicopter view of the show's 33-year run reveals a country turning from left to right, from the Great Society to the Reagan Revolution and beyond. You see an America that weathered massive civil unrest in the 1960s, the collapse of the presidency in the 1970s, and the rise of conservative approaches to economics and foreign policy in the 1980s, an America that, by the 1990s, had emerged as a society in which certain key cultural values had shifted left, even as the Republican Party had continued its rightward shift, pulling the Democratic Party along in its wake. You will also learn that political discussion is at its best when it brings with it a strong sense of humor. Politics are serious business, but rage doesn't improve the quality of your debating any more than pimped out graphics and set design to. And I love this picture. This is from 1999, okay? Just to illustrate the sparsity of the set and how that, that stayed. It's like he's been sitting next to the same table from the 60s for 33 years with the same glass of water beside him, right? With its carpeted dais, a few chairs, the occasional ashtray, and perhaps a luxurious glass of water, Firing Line had proved definitively that less is more. Thank you. Well, a little like this is church. With, uh, I noticed that people kind of filled in from the back forward. But unlike church, uh, you're encouraged for most of church uh, let's have some participation from the uh, not only the choir down here, but the, the congregation. Sure. Sue? Um, I would love to hear more about what Buckley thought about public television, you know, both as something that's seen as forward by liberals, but then also as the home of a lot of more long-form, in-depth, in-depth, uh, you know, civil debate as in, like, 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, some people assume that, you know, Buckley must have been ambivalent about being on PBS. It's government-funded TV. He's against government funding of most things besides defense, right? He was very comfortable with being on PBS. Um, he thought, you know, he was performing a good public service and so on. That said, when he was defunded, or when all of public broadcasting, it's always been struggling for funding, right? But when Reagan defunded PBS more rigorously than previous presidents had, um, he started sending out letters to uh, potential donors to support the show. And these letters were jubilant. Like, finally, Reagan is just cutting everything, you know, slashing. And, you know, you'd think he'd be worried about his imminent cancellation. He wasn't. Because he was this free market conservative reaching out to successful businessmen and companies like, you know, Mobile and Exxon and Dow Chemical and saying, you know, support my show. And his show was supportive of them, you know, sometimes directly, sometimes obliquely. So he found the funding that he wanted and he went on. So by the end of the 80s, um, he was, he wasn't one of the loudest voices advocating against PBS. He would occasionally run a show in which he said, you know, why can't everyone else just find someone to pay for their TV like I have, right? But he was never one of those guys who was just like, we must destroy PBS the way, uh, and it's become so symbolic. You know, it's really, it's such a small part of the federal budget, but people act like it's, like, huge, right? Because it's symbolic. Um, so uh, that was really his, his position. Um, PBS's position was they knew that a lot of their programming was liberal um, or kind of neutral, right? Um, and when they were accused of being too liberal, they would be like, but we have the most important conservative in America on TV show. You know, he's been on since 19... He moved to PBS in 71. He's done over a thousand shows for us. And so um, it was kind of useful for PBS to keep him on the air, even as his numbers were really plummeting, you know, by the, by the 90s. Um, and uh, Nixon, who, when I was way to try to destroy PBS, uh, you know, always described uh, Firing Line as a fig leaf for PBS, you know, just to cover their shame that uh, they, you know, were so liberal dominated. Um, and a lot of conservatives agreed, like, yeah, Firing Line was kind of a fig leaf. They were the only conservative show for a long time. And then by the 80s, you know, there was more and more conservative programming on PBS because those were the people who could go out and find the money uh, more readily to support the kinds of shows they were doing. Yeah, Pete. Absolutely wonderful um, uh, presentation. Thanks. Uh, I wonder if it's possible, if it gave some good reasons to start to think about how it might be. But... Um, didn't, wasn't there something in, in the fact that this particular individual was really comfortable being the token uh, conservative in what really was a liberal mm -hmm. establishment? And so now, if the country's gone to the right, we have to find a liberal who was uh, comfortable uh, in, a, in, a, in a really right-wing-leaning um, media environment. And that, that seems a little harder to do because uh, there isn't the shared, apparently not the shared commitment to rational discourse. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated question. Um, I mean, I will say that liberals tend to say that oh, the media is completely right-wing now and conservatives tend to say, oh, the media is completely left-wing now, right? And if you sort of objectively survey what's on TV, you see a split in the news between hard right and hard left and kind of some squishy stuff in the middle. Most entertainment programming is um, not leftist, but sort of liberal, kind of in the middle, comfortable with, say, 
gay marriage, comfortable okay. with feminism, comfortable, you know, with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what, you know, what I said towards the end was that, you know, cult, certain cultural values have shifted left, even as economic and foreign policy has gone to the right. So it's hard to categorize the contemporary climate as, you know, it's, it's completely conservative now. Well, it's actually kind of complicated mix. And you're absolutely right that you could have a liberal host of My Firing Line 2.0, and I think it could work as well as a conservative host, because the idea is someone who's really smart someone who's got a great sense of humor, someone willing to listen to the other point of view, and who's not an interviewer, but who is a conversationalist. Because interviewing on TV is mostly horrible, right? It's just, you know, they do a, uh, if, you, if, if it's Tonight Show, any kind of the late night talk shows, they do, um, the assistants meet with the person ahead of time, go through their talking points, then they come on, and the host just gives them prompts. You know, I heard something funny happen to you last week, and then they tell the story. You know, there's never real conversation. So finding someone who could promote kind of a real sort of conversation would be the first step and would be the hardest step, I think. Yes? So you talked a lot about the relation between comedy and political commentary, and I'm wondering what, um, even though a lot of people kind of accept that a lot of the best political commentary comes out of comedians and out of shows line between political shows and comedic shows and we can say things like oh there's no good political show like firing line now so why how, like how is it like maybe can you talk about can we is the answer maybe to take comedy more seriously and point to something like you know politically incorrect or real time with Bill Maher or you know I think we should take comedy more seriously. I think that's a nice way to put it. And I talk at more length in the conclusion about Colbert and The Daily Show and about how there's a general tendency for uh, people to sort of uh, poo-poo those shows as like, oh, young people get all their news from comedy and it's not real news and they should be watching the evening, CBS Evening News and so on. And you know, that misses the fact that there actually is a lot of comedy inherent in politics, and these shows acknowledge that. Um, and it misses the fact that these shows often did uh, better coverage than the regular news. Um, because Let's say that uh, a politician, and this, one thing I loved about The Daily Show, it, well, it's, it's still on, but like, say, the, the Stuart reign, <laughs> is that, yeah, he was a liberal. But he was willing to make fun of liberals and conservatives. If you made an ass of yourself, he would you know, show it on the show and talk about it and make fun of it and do a kind of analysis. And if a conservative or a liberal you know, had a sudden switch in position, like I used to be for uh, gay rights, but now I'm against them. Uh, and the CBS Evening News, you'd be very unlikely to see a, an in-depth discussion of this guy's former perspective. You would just hear his newest you know, soundbite news release for the media. But on The Daily Show, you'd see a clip of him saying the opposite thing, you know, six months or a year earlier. And then some kind of analysis would ensue. And it was always soundbite kind of analysis. It wasn't the long disquisition, disquisition that, you know, firing line enabled. But it was, a, it was substantive. So I, um, I would agree with you that we need to take comedy more seriously and that, that that is often where some of the best political discussion is happening out there or political expression. That's the best I can do. Yes, Gordon. Uh, I, I think there's an interesting sort of argument happening today about how we talk about what's happening with the right in the U.S. and, uh, it's, and how we sort of frame that historically, right? And mm -hmm. So, for example, you have David Brooks nine days ago, you know, writing in the New York Times, 
uh, lamenting what's happened to the, the, the right and saying, quote, basically the party abandoned traditional conservatism for right-wing radicalism. And then you have people like Paul Krugman and Corey Robin basically saying that's not the right account of history, actually. It's not that the right has gotten become more radical. It's that they're worse at basically dog-whistle politics. So they hold the same core beliefs. Those beliefs haven't actually changed. Mm -hmm. But back in the sort of halcyon days that, that David Brooks is referring to, you know, politicians were more skillful about talking about the state's rights. And this was all they had to say to sort of, you know, Camouflage, yeah. but that never fooled anyone. I mean, I don't think this dog whistle stuff is new. And you know, I have a chapter on the civil rights movement and Black Power. And you know, Buckley had a difficult time. He really believed in states' rights. That it, you know, he he thought that that racism was simple. It was wrong, but that states should make certain decisions about who was qualified to vote in their states and so on. It was a problematic um, position. But it didn't come out of a straight up kind of racism the way it did for Strom Thurmond. And, and George Wallace and people he had on his show. So he had trouble having guests on who actually did more than use the same language he did, but actually really agreed with him. So they were kind of doing a dog whistle thing of like, you all know what I mean by states' rights, wink, wink. And he was actually, you know, having a sort of more elevated platonic idea of what states' rights might be. So um, all of which is to say, you know, this, this, you're right that the way the, the current discussion is, it, it does get the history wrong, but it gets it wrong in so many different ways. Um, I think the, one of the best places to look for analysis of what's happening in conservatism right now and in the Republican Party, which is sometimes the same thing as conservatism and sometimes not, right, which is something firing line negotiated, is to read National Review and to look at how they're dealing with all of these candidates for the Republican ticket, how they're talking about Trump who they think is, you know, nonsense. I mean, the, there, a couple weeks ago, there was a cover of National Review with Donald Trump as a cartoon of Yosemite Sam, you know, with big guns and big hat, you know, and they're just totally making fun of him. Um, and they're comfortable with Carly Fiorina, and they're sort of, you know, talking it through and debating what it means to be conservative and Republican. Um, and they're kind of negotiating what they see as a crisis in the party, but then trying to use language to show, like, it's all going to be okay, like therapy when I think secretly they think, you know, it's not going to be okay. The party is really in crisis right now. And, uh, you know, what they're not talking about is the possibility of a third party emerging, which is what uh, Bill Rusher, the publisher of National Review, wanted for years. Buckley never wanted that. He wanted to pull the party, the Republican Party right, which he succeeded in helping to make that happen. And Rusher always thought the Republican Party will never be far enough right, we just need, need a new party. And... I don't think that's really going to happen, but I think that's a kind of threat in the air right now, is that if you actually have, mod, relatively speaking, moderate Republicans saying, you know, we just saw the debate at the Reagan Museum with a giant plane behind everyone, and like, that was nonsense. You know, we need a moderate Republican candidate. And then you've got the far right kind of Tea Party guys. I think there is some anxiety that there is going to be some kind of splinter, even if it's, I doubt it's going to happen. I, does that get at what you're asking a little bit? I think so. Maybe just one quick follow-up. So, so mm -hmm. it sounds like you would basically agree that that this this uh, way of portraying what's happening in the U.S. right now that that the Republican Party has become more radical. You you, you would dispute that, and you would say actually. I think it's a mix. I think the party has always fought to. It's had far-right people within it. And then people that are so far right that it, the sort of party uh, establishment sees them as kooks. 
know, how do we keep them in? It's like that cartoon with birchism. How do we keep them in but not let them take over? And there's a similar of sort of parallel anxiety about the Christian right uh, in the late 80s and what Pat Robertson was running for president of like, yeah, we want the Christian right votes. And many of us who we call, you know, we within the Republican Party are evangelical, conservative evangelical Christians. But how do we keep them from taking over? And it becomes a play between the sort of establishment party people and the kind of outsider forces, which then becomes very appealing in mass culture discussion, this idea that like, you know, Fiorina is going to be great because she's an outsider. And, you know, these guys on the inside, you know, they're all the, the liberal, not liberal, the, uh, you know, establishment politicians, and they're all playing a game, whereas the outsider can speak the truth and be honest and so on. So it quickly becomes very sort of mythic. I have a follow-up kind of to that, uh, and um, do you feel like the absence of somebody like William uh, F. Buckley uh, with firing line disappearing in the 90s has, in the absence of that figure as a conservative on TV, kind of giving this uh, weight to, to uh, ideological discussions, do you think that's led to um, the Republican I don't think there's a cause and effect relationship there. I think that would be too kind of blunt as a way to examine what's going on. Uh, they do need, like there's a new surge in kind of right-wing policy thinkers who are creating new journals and stuff for politicians to read, but you only know about them if you watch Bill, if you read Bill Crystal's uh, The Weekly Standard, or you watch his podcasts and stuff, right? So it's sort of behind the scenes. And it would help them to have, not that I'm just like dying to help the Republican Party get it together, but what they need is, a, is more public figures, not just the guy publishing the interesting policy want kind of journals for conservatives, but more public figures who could help them kind of talk through what right-wing conservatism could be, or moderate conservatism, even. But it appears that the Democrats have an equally difficult time finding that person as well. I think that's a result of fragmented media and people paying attention more to the echo chambers of... Uh, you know, I, I don't know. What do you mean by saying the Democrats have... I mean, look, the Republicans and Democrats always have problems. Yes. But I think the Republican Party is more visibly in crisis now than the Democratic Party, even as, okay, now Joe's not running. Wait, what if Hillary gets totally taken down by this email stuff? You know, that, so they have a problem. But at every election cycle, they have a problem. Who's our candidate going to be? Who's the best one? Who's going to win? Um, so... I mean, more as an intellectual force, it seems there is... On both sides, right? The, 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 like Ben Carson or Donald Trump on one side and Bernie Sanders are both seen as sort of out. And you're saying that might be linked to um, the kind of niche social media echo chamber environment? Yes. I'm wondering if you're thinking that these figures like someone on the front line who are intelligent and would have a, uh, a wonderful television program aren't able to really have that platform because the, inter the internet has taken over that space 
Yes and no, <laughs> because in these kind of niche echo chamber environments, you can talk to more people, right? Um, but you're only likely to talk to people who are already on the same page as you are. Other people aren't going to look for you, aren't going to find you accidentally. They're not, you know, the the no one's going to look at what they've been looking. No uh, algorithm is going to find from what they've been looking at online and push them towards somebody politically opposite. Um, so if we don't have a venue like Firing Line, where would you go if you wanted to genuinely hear the other point of view outside of a preaching to the choir kind of environment? So it would be very helpful to have. Would it fix everything? No. It would make TV better. It would make political discussion better. Um, it could help things, but it's not, a, it's not any kind of panacea. Is there a real problem with the level of civil discourse and political discourse as far as, you know, I, I get so worried that when people are talking about not wanting to be politically correct, it comes off just that they want to be bullish. Mm -hmm. They want to be meaner and meaner, and I just worry about that becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And I think part of it is, you know, with the internet and stuff, you had all that anonymity. Yeah, I will say though that the the benefit to public discourse and rationality in uh, social media and in the fact that everyone's always taking recordings on their phone and pictures as if this were my phone, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, the benefit is that politicians used to be able to do a lot more stuff under the wire, so that if you were doing a whistle stop tour and you were Nixon, Richard Nixon in 1968, dare I say, somewhat unscrupulous. You might give a very different speech in Georgia, you definitely would, than you would in New York City, right, in New York. And the newspapers might report your, uh, you know, dog whistle kind of states' rights talk in Georgia, and you would say, oh, they misquoted me, stupid liberal media, when actually they quoted you correctly. You know, you were being more racist in New York than you were in New York City. And you can't get away with that kind of stuff when someone just has their phone and, like, here's the speech, and they, you know, put it up on Facebook and it gets picked up maybe and, you know, it gets a little long trail to it and, you know, a lot of people watch it. You can't get beneath the radar in that way. You know, I mean, this is how right-wing radio in the 50s, 60s, and into the early 70s functioned, is that people would listen to this horrible anti-civil rights, anti-Martin uh, Luther King stuff on the radio and they complain to the FCC and the FCC would be like, Wait, what? Prove it. Because it was an ephemeral medium, and then you'd have to get like a giant reel-to-reel -reel tape player, record it, log it, officially log a complaint. And it's much easier to just, you know, repost something and show that something negative really did happen by your Democrat or your Republican candidate. So it's hard to find all this stuff through the noise, you know, of the media sphere, and yet it can be out there in a way that it couldn't be before all that social media existed. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that's part of his strategy because he doesn't want to spend money. He's, you know, a lot of people who are really rich are also very tight. That's why they're so rich. You know, he doesn't want to spend money on advertisements. He wants to say outrageous stuff so he can get free media. 
And he seems to think he could actually do that if he were the candidate, like up to the end, instead of spending his entire fortune on advertisements. Right? So in some way, it's symptomatic of the contemporary media scape, and in some way, it's just symptomatic of Trump and how he's functioning. I do. <laughs> it does seem like what, yeah. what we've talked about in previous questions was that there's a certain kind of political public intellectual that's missing. And I yeah. think that's because of changing media landscapes or other forces, but that certainly is what I would call yeah, I think we need more of them. I'm pretty comfortable with public intellectual as a, you know, yeah, yeah. we need more of those. And, and so, <coughs> why? Why, why, is, why is there this absence? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know how to answer that with, I don't want to give a cranky, easy response like, we need to educate people better or everyone has a short attention span. They need to read more long books and, you know, all this kind of, you know, there are all kinds of cranky responses to that and I can't quite. I mean, long form journalism is sort of the major medium for public intellectuals. Yeah. And I think if we, uh, this is again sort of pie in the sky, but if we all supported long form journalism by subscribing to The New Yorker and, you know, uh, voting with our wallets, as it were, you know, uh, reading more of this stuff and supporting it more and not, uh, uh, it would be better than investing in like short little tiny pieces of reading that we do all the time. It's kind of more distracted consumption. So you're absolutely right that that long form journalism does help to uh, encourage the existence of public intellectuals, right? Because um, a lot of them are the ones who would be producing that kind of stuff and they need an audience. Um, in the conclusion, you know, when I, when I mentioned uh, MSNBC, I add a note, like for some people this would be uh, heretical. You know, how could you have Fireline 2.0 on MSNBC with a liberal? And my point is, we don't need a new Fireline 2.0 because we need better conservative public intellectuals. We need a Fireline 2.0 because we need public intellectuals. Need more of them. And not only the, a host who's a public intellectual, but a host having guests on who are potentially public intellectuals or you know participate to an intellectual public discussion. So um, yeah I think you brought up a really really interesting um uh, sort of view of Buckley as as the, as the intellectual but you know um same as uh the right. I'm sort of conscious of another view of Buckley um which I think really well encapsulated by the film on the best companies mm -hmm. this year. Um, terrific film. Everyone should go see it. Yeah I really love it. And, it's very good. It sort of shows, I wouldn't say completely a contradictory side of Bucky, but it does show the moment he was there when the first blood was spilled on the, the massive sort of knock about um, discourse, punditocracy. Um, and, you know, in true sort of Bucky style, you know, there's, there's this sort of second view of him, um, and it got pretty nasty with, with Gordon Dow. And I just wonder to what extent you think in sort of a, uh, a biography of Bucky, to what extent those two things were, could be, could be reconciled because he was quite ashamed of his. Meaning I've looked at the sort of genteel Buckley and this points to a nastier Buckley. Right. Is that what? What's so interesting, I mean, best, uh, I'm sorry, what's the name? Best of Enemies. Best of yeah, yeah. Uh, th this film details the Buckley-Gore Vidal encounter doing commentary at the 1968 Democratic National Convention and from over like maybe five days, okay? 
and I highly recommend it. It's very interesting. And you know, when they hired each of these guys to do commentary, they said, what are your terms? And you know, they both wanted to be well paid and so on. And Gore, Vidal said, yeah, just anyone but Buckley. Just don't put me against Buckley. And Buckley said, yeah, anyone but Gore Vidal I'll talk to. And so they deliberately put them together to try to you know, spill some blood and make things happen. So the film sort of positions this as proto-Fox News in some ways. Something of an overstatement, but OK, they're onto something. Um, and eventually, and eventually, they do really duke it out. They call each other names. Things get very nasty, you know, sort of briefly, right? Uh, and what's interesting that you see from the film is how Buckley felt bad about this for, you know, the next 35, 40 years. <laughs> you know, that he had lost his cool. He never uh, came around to liking the doll, but he had lost his cool on national TV. He would said he was going to punch. Uh, this guy in the goddamn nose. He called him a fag. Did he call him a fag or a fairy? Anyway, he, he, he you know, told him all. And, and he was pushed this because Vidal had called him uh, a crypto fascist and was, you know, that he was implying he was a Nazi. And really, you know, he, so they were pushing each other and they ultimately got very nasty. And the fact that Buckley felt bad about it was like, what happened? And wrote a whole article in, I believe it was Esquire. See, Esquire or Harper's. I think it was Esquire. You know, really, really long piece about, you know, why I lost my cool on TV, what happened, how, you know, kind of saying like uh, what I did was legitimate, but I shouldn't have at the same time, right? I was pushed too hard, but I should not have lost my cool. And Vidal was like, that bastard, I hate him. And when, when Buckley died, said, you know, there's someone, there's a new resident of hell today. That was his, you know, <laughs> quote in the news. <laughs> like, okay, so who came out looking better from this? Whether you're a liberal or conservative, Buckley kind of looks better uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, there definitely uh, was, you don't want to paint him as like the friendliest, nicest conservative, right? Definitely if you were liberal, there are things he did and said that you'd be like, that's horrible. He did, he did similar things with Chomsky, threatening violence. Well, um, and, and it was always in a situation where he could get the other person to question his uh, patriotism or compare him to a Nazi or something. And he'd do the same thing. And Chomsky, unlike Vidal, do not pick up the conflict and just yes, I rec ignore it. I recommend watching the Chomsky show. You can see it on Amazon Prime. There's about 200 episodes streamed on Amazon Prime, so you can watch lots of good stuff. Um, you see Chomsky, you see The Mailer. There's a terrific Allen Ginsberg episode. Um, what's interesting in the Chomsky episode is that Chomsky keeps his cool so much, and Buckley does a little bit less. And by the end of the show, you know, the show ends, and then he storms off the set. You know, he's really, he gets really angry at Chomsky, but he keeps it together as much as he can. Early in the show, they're having an exchange, and Chomsky says something like, I wouldn't want to offend you. And Buckley says, well, I'd have to punch you in the goddamn nose. And he's making fun of the Vidal exchange. So when people point to that as the time he threatened to punch Noam Chomsky, he was doing it in quotation marks. Right, so Chomsky did feel like, oh, uncomfortable, but at the same time, this was actually a joke. And people who don't know the backstory tend to see it, you know, read it differently. And I think it's worth pointing out. Um, it is true that from 66 to 71, uh, really from 66 to 69, uh, the shows were more hostile. They were heavily marketed. They're in the commercial market of syndication rather than on PBS, and they're marketed as the ideological battle of the week, you know, the knockdown fight and so on. And RKO is the company that's uh, distributing them and is really, you know, pushing that angle hard. And then it does get a bit more genteel later, although there's still, you know, real hostility, but it's a little softer. 
Anybody else? Yes. Uh, say fascist or even crypto fascist um, but the question about celebrity I think is a good one um, you know uh, when I interviewed Neil Freeman who was involved with Buckley in the earliest days um, he said you know he, he was a young man who had found a national review he gotten a lot of publicity for his first book God and Man at Yale an attack on liberal humanism at Yale University it came out in 1953 I believe National Review was found in 1955 he was sort of known Ish. He was on radio a lot debating. He was a guest on talk shows as the token conservative, you know. Um, and it was running for mayor of New York City that made him a celebrity. Because if you run for New York City, as Neil Freeman put it, it's like running for national office in terms of exposure, in terms of people recognizing you, knowing who you are, right? And knowing, and knowing what's going on in New York City politics outside of New York in the way you wouldn't know about, you know, who's running for mayor of, you know, Akron, Ohio. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but New York City, people know, right? So it created him as a celebrity. Um, and this was a tremendous service to the conservative movement, to have an articulate, suave celebrity persona expressing their point of view. And yet, he was more egghead than all of them. You know, he was not like the, he wasn't packaging himself as the typical right-wing conservative. Like, he was special. <laughs> and he wasn't even... It's fair to say he was a public intellectual, right? That's a kind of umbrella label that's useful. Um, but he wasn't an intellectual in terms of, he wasn't publishing intellectual books, right? He had this idea for a very intellectual book that was that his first, one of his earliest biographers, uh, John Judas, he's got two biographers, two of his biographers are Judas and Bogus. <laughs> that's really funny, both liberal, right? Um, so Judas says, you know, he wanted to write the, the big book, and he never did. He never got it together to write a serious intellectual book. He wrote a book once a year. He went to Switzerland to go skiing with David Niven and John Kenneth Galbraith, right, famous left-wing economist from Harvard, and, all, and he would write for like six hours in the morning. And by the end of the ski trip, he'd have a new book out. Okay. So, and he, he would readily admit, you know, he would say, I'm not deep, but I'm fast. Okay. And the books weren't thin, but they, they weren't deep. Right. So he would, you know, churn out a, a book of, uh, you know, like he read a book up from liberalism. You know, he'd turn out a book about conservative theory or conservative politics of that year. And then he got into writing uh, uh, conservative spy novels. Right? He did this whole series that countered the John Le Carre books, which were more cynical and more, um, you know, the kind of idea was, you know, post-Watergate, this idea that, like, we're just as bad as the Russians. We do all kinds of corrupt stuff, and, you know, our spies are just as bad as their spies, and, you know, shoot you in the back, and all this kind of stuff. So he wanted to do a kind of pro-spy book, and he had actually been a CIA agent for a year in Mexico, right? So this was the kind of, he could crank out one of these new books, you know, in a month or two, in his breaks from skiing in Switzerland, right? So if he was a public intellectual, it was like light on the intellectual side in certain ways, more on the public side, you know, very, you know, articulate, but not, a, but perhaps more celebrity than intellectual. 
food is here. All right. This means it's transition time. Let us thank Professor Henderson. Thank you all.